0: I mean, who am I? Where am I going? You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. A little longer of a delay on this episode because... Late in my preparation for it, I discovered that David Chase read a book called The Snow Leopard and that it informed this alternate look at Tony. So I ordered it and I read it because that's how Pata Bing rolls. The author, Peter Matheson, who died a few years ago, is the only writer to win the National Book Award for fiction and nonfiction. How many books can you say have that kind of juice behind them going in? Reading it was a rigorous analysis unto itself. Actually, if I'm being honest, it paralyzed me. And among other things it prevented me from doing, or delaying them at least, I couldn't bring myself to prepare for this episode. I even questioned whether I should or not. Continue, that is. It's not a summer list read, to say the least. And for many, it will come off as a too-dense series of journal entries about a guy on a trip. But for some reason, when I read it, and especially in the context of where I'm at with this podcast, what I had hoped to achieve with it, and on reckoning with some of the aspects on which I'll fall short, I felt profoundly grateful and lucky I stumbled upon Chase's mention of the book. The timing couldn't have been better. It's painful and forcefully inward-looking, like a Atreyu in front of the Southern Oracle in The Never-Ending Story or something. But as much as it wrecked me in a couple of ways, it built me up in others. In the intro, travel writer Pico Ayer mentions he's read it several times, and every time, as with all classics, it gives off a different light, growing as he does and shifting to meet the needs of every moment. That about sums up my feelings on The Sopranos, too. Thanks, Pico. Worth noting that wind and mescaline are part of the story as well. Unrelenting wind and rain and hailstones eliminate the faint-hearted among us is one of the book's central messages. The book is an account of a guy on an uphill journey. To a mythical place in the Himalayas. And part of the journey, or purpose of the journey, is a chance to observe a snow leopard, the rarest of rare creatures. But even a rare opportunity was enough. For that alone, just the journey was worth it. Even if you never crossed paths with the snow leopard. In climbing whatever you climb, with whatever goal you have in mind, whatever elusive animal you have in your scopes, the real search is within. It's a massive metaphor and anchored in multiple corners of my mind. I have many snow leopards. In this context, specifically, David Chase is one snow leopard. And this hope of glimpsing a near-mythic beast in the snow mountains, like Matheson, or a fucking diner in New Jersey if you're me, is reason enough for the entire journey. And as much as I stumbled up along the way, or had avalanches come barreling down over me, the climb alone has been worth it. Whether or not I fall short. I won't reveal whether or not the author achieved his objective, but if you read it, reach out, and let me know what your snow leopards are, and how the climb's going. Okay, how about we go from my alternate universe to Tony's? For a variety of reasons, not the least of which is his is much more interesting. Besides, what the fuck is this? Seven years in Tibet now? HBO synopsis. In the wake of being shot by Junior, Tony endures a delusional West Coast business trip in which he loses his wallet and his identity. Carmelo is joined at the hospital by family and friends Meanwhile, Silvio briefs a crew on how it will handle things in Tony's absence. And Vito stirs things up by asking for some of the late Eugene's business. This episode was written by David Chase and directed by David Nutter, who's directed on numerous shows, everything from X Files to Entourage and won an Emmy for his work on Game of Thrones. Different director suggests a different look, and he delivered in more ways than one, as we'll see. Okay, the alternate universe episode. The feel and pace and otherworldliness of this episode was welcome. And I'm aware that's not the popular opinion, but it is the critical one. I've used the change-up analogy before, but it's exactly that. And to extend it a step further, it's kind of like listening to an album by a favorite artist. like. So many great ones, the album hums along, not predictable by any means, but certainly in some kind of a lane. But then, all of a sudden, you hear a no-look pass from out of nowhere and it throws you. I think of Billy Joel's Street Life Serenade album. It hums along, Street Life Serenader, Los Angelinos, Roberta, then bang, The Entertainer. This was that to me. And like Joel, Chase knew, if you're going to have a hit, you got to cut it down to 305. Which he so did. Down to the very last frame. You know, I read someplace that he said that when they rapped on Silvio at the end of the show, he and Gandolfini remarked that that's the end of them working with a rock star. I'd argue that feeling was a two-way street. Also, love autopsy's use of the word jumpy. That's what other dreams in the show have been to this point, but not here. There's a cohesion and smoothness to this one, comparatively speaking. Something's different, undream-like. We open on Tony laying in an unknown bed. There's a podcast series, stories from other people's sheets in the immediate aftermath. modern love twist on the who am I, where am I going device. The camera's overhead, but askew. Again, the angles. This creative choice quickly course-corrects us. Takes us immediately out of whatever we're doing before and creates this autofocus for the mind. Chase's version of the Calm or Headspace apps, maybe. We're here with Tony. Put your other shit away. And soak in this, for the time being, bloodless bathtub for a while. Tony's wearing a shirt and tie. Now, we've seen him wear that look before more than once, but it's different this time. It's more men's warehousey, less Bruno Magli. The reflection of light off the fabric is just different than Tony's other suits. Less regal, authoritative. But back on men's warehouse for a sec. George Zimmer, talking about this thing of ours, talk about that thing of his. 1,200 stores at its peak. Started with one location in 1973 when he was 24 years old. But guy got diluted down to 3%. Talk about gangsters. Reminded me of that dinner at Dr. Melfi's where the guys at the table say, boardrooms are more tough than pork store back rooms. Never more true than right there. Getting diluted down to the bone. I can see Alley Boy with his hands up in disgust at the thought. Or even Carlo Gervaisi. These guys gotta eat too. So, Tony's asleep, open mouth breathing, which incidentally is connected with diminished cognition due to low oxygen. Fitting, the medical consultant for this episode deserves high praise for many of the intricate details throughout. T wakes abruptly, checks his watch. Now, we know that a broken clock is right twice a day. But what about a clock in a dream? Or is it a dream? Chase never articulated completely what this was, but has gone so far as to say it's not a dream per se. It's been called an alternate universe, a purgatory of sorts. I've always thought of it as an in-between place. A place not unlike what Tibetans call the bardo, or between two existences. Not quite Dante yet, we're still in the land of sentient beings. But maybe it's an elevated purgatory, literally rarefied air. And per the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's where these final thoughts will dictate the quality of one's reincarnation. Tony looks outside a window, which I think is relevant. Hold on to that for a second. We see an unknown skyscape. Definitely not New Jersey or New York. Someplace more quiet, less dense. Alive, but dead. Sound familiar? In the distance, we see a searchlight or beacon of some kind, with the same potency of those strobes that movie theaters used to use on Friday nights to promote their business, especially prominent in the suburbs. The light we see in this frame could represent heaven on a metaphysical level, but it's a connection to the outside world, the trauma room that Tony's fighting for his life in. We just don't know that yet. Also, Since I'm in a thoughtful, philosophical mode, especially after Snow Leopard, it's interesting to see that the darkest moments we go through are connected or linked together by light. I'm immediately reminded of the Smiths. There is a light that never goes out. Or perhaps if you're into something a little more contemporary. Kanye West's All of the Lights. Gotta say, a person who creates that track is just on another level, creatively. That snare punching away at your ears like Morse code? Really hope he's okay. The lyrics of that song, All of the Lights, are especially on point with where we find Tony. Quote, Cop lights, flashlights, spotlights, strobe lights, street lights, all of the lights, all of the lights. Fast life, drug life, thug life, rock life. The only thing missing, Kanye, is the regularness of life. Tony's in his own head indefinitely. No matter how long Chase decides to play out these parallel existences, we get the sense that it's not ending anytime soon. Certainly not in the confines of a single episode. Junior's bullet was like a cork that locked Tony up inside himself. A quarantine of the mind. Next frame, we're in a bar. Bars and death themes. So many classic examples, but forever seared in my mind is Jack Nicholson in The Departed. How's your brother? She's on her way out. You all are. Act accordingly. Back to this bar. Again, lacking a certain New York, New Jersey flair. You can feel the fucking carpet in there. Watch it enough times and a rash will begin to form in the back of your neck. And again, we just saw Tony get shot. What is this shit? A flashback? We aren't quite sure just yet. The disorientation of seeing Tony on the floor of Junior's kitchen is still fresh and this isn't helping. Tony's sipping a drink. Wild turkey neat, I wondered. And on a TV nearby, we see coverage of wildfires near Costa Mesa, California. Easy symbolism, obviously, for hell, perhaps to contrast with the earlier heavenly beacon. Tony's caught between two poles. Interesting to note that hell was depicted within the confines of a TV, whereas heaven was symbolized through the view outside a window. Also, California wildfires. As California as apple pie is American. And Costa Mesa, a place known mostly for its mall, South Coast Plaza. Can't help but personalize that and project onto this episode. Death by a thousand visits to that mall over the years. To quantify its significance to the business of malls, if there is one mall left after this pandemic and new world order of consumerism, whatever that looks like, it will be that motherfucking mall. We see on the bar counter next to him something that reads Costa Mesa Tex-Mex. So a discerning viewer might quickly pick up on the fact that we're not in Kansas anymore. What the fuck is T doing in Costa Mesa, California? Tex Mex, by the way, as it pertains to food, was coined by the New York Times in the early 60s. But why Costa Mesa? Sure, its resemblance to Cosa Nostra is the cleanest rationalization. But having lived nearby and on the East Coast and numerous destinations in between, I always read it as a referendum on Southern California, Orange County in particular. Note again, He checks his watch. From the opening moment, this Tony has been in a rush. In a race, if you will, against time. Whatever day of reckoning this might be, he wants it over and done with. On with it already. Tony's application of, what are you going to do to himself? He gets up, places a call that goes to voicemail. Hi, you've reached the Sopranos that's the Soprano home voicemail recording? It's more who's the boss than Sopranos. But it's a signal, at least, that something's off. Tony's message, I'm here, call me, love you. But where? Why? What's Costa Mesa for? What's it code for? Are we in some kind of variation on a theme of Dante's Inferno? No, wait, A.J. and Meadows sounded super young. This is a flashback. These are all the thoughts that arise as we process this. The biggest of all, though, why the fuck did Tony get shot? Now, like that, by his diminished uncle? As opposed to, you know, a calculated hit, or something more cinematic, at least. Patsy's feelings on the matter notwithstanding. Note that as Tony heads back to the bar, and don't let the music distract you from this, But we see the profile of a man who appears to look the part of a corporate sales guy right out of Central Casting or something. But he's flanked by two guys in Tony shirts that, in a strange way, look like iterations of Tony Soprano, not unlike we've seen around the world in various places, conventions, and office parks and the like. Season 5 had two Tonys. Season 6, at least in this alternate universe or Bardo, has three Tonys. Even if just optically. It's strange. Even seeing it now, after so many views, Tony is in a room full of Tonys. And I think that's the whole fucking point. Something I've been going back to over and over and over again since I began this project. Doesn't matter if you're Italian or Puerto Rican, a Vishnu come lately, or Woody Guthrie a ZZ Top or a Wonder Bread Whop. a Jamal Ginsburg or a crooked congressman, a degenerate gambler or a laundry entrepreneur. Everywhere we go, like Tony, we find ourselves in rooms full of other Tonys, other variations or shades of us. And that, for me, has always been what Tony represents. Fucking occupation notwithstanding. A guy who keeps on keeping on, who was born into something he wants out of, the difference or the spectrum of this similarity is that some are better at changing their life lot, at encircling their own personal snow leopard, and getting that glimpse. Or if you're Mike Tyson, owning that shit and wrestling it in your backyard swimming pool. Anyway, Tony settles up at the bar and as he leaves, picks up a briefcase. This is noteworthy simply because we've never seen Tony carry around a fucking briefcase anywhere. But it's not completely out of whack. Maybe there are stacks of cash in there. Maybe he's doing a deal with the cartel associate who was at a conference in Costa Mesa. Maybe he's trying to fix Chris's cigarette stamp debacle. Interstate fucking commerce over here. Like Ice Cube said domino motherfuckers on Friday, legal acolytes holler, commerce clause motherfuckers. As he heads outside, he presses against his abdomen. A reminder. And we hear a helicopter overhead. Connectivity to the Tony we know. Spotlight comes down hard on him, on us, and all is made clear in a crafty show-don't-tell moment. We see the faint glimmer of a doctor looking at him closely with a light. You ever wonder why doctors check patients for sensitivity to light? Why they shine a light right into the eye? I was curious. And it's pretty elementary. It's to check for brain death. If the pupil of the eye, that's the black dot in the middle that allows light to strike the retina in the back, if the pupil constricts, it's an indicator of life. Other things, doctors can tell by shining a light in there, include brain function, nerve function, certain diseases, and whether or not a person has overdosed. The eyes tell us a lot. Tony's especially. We recognize now that this is some kind of a dream or comatose state, a la David Chase, a transit hotel lobby bar in Costa-fucking-Mesa. The regularness of life on a silver platter. Tony, or this version of Tony, undeterred by the light, forges ahead to his hotel room, at least for now. If this is his shot at heaven, He ain't going out like this. Not in Costa fucking Mesa. I will say, though, that Costa Mesa means plateau over the coast. And I'm down for a plateau purgatory situation as long as Nirvana's plateau is playing. The unplugged version. Especially that breakdown at the end. Could put it on loop forever. Next day, we see Tony driving. More driving in dreams, or whatever this is. Only Tony's in control this time. He's driving which by itself is paradoxical since he's been shot and is existing off tubes. He's pensive. Also worth noting the stillness in all these frames so far. The stillness of Costa Mesa. There's no wind. Wind was a feature or character in The Snow Leopard too, for whatever that's worth. Anyway, Tony's driving and, like us, looks lost. Next, we're on him walking up assertively through a hallway, briefcase in tow, walking up with conviction, almost like with an always-be-closing face on. Glen Gary, Glenn Ross over here. But again, the suit is different. The gold buttons and the buttoned collar are giveaways, and that's for starters. He gets into a line with a sign next to it that reads Western Div MilSpec 06. MilSpec, real quick, has to do with stuff that's U.S. military grade. You want to win a contract with the DOD? Your shit better be Millspec. Millspec is also LeBron James in the postseason. Teflon Braun. Tony makes his way to the table and says his name is Anthony Soprano in a not very Anthony Soprano-sounding way, an indication, as if it wasn't crystal clear already, at how great an actor Gandolfini was. He hands over his ID, and it's handed back to him awkwardly kind of like when I used to hand over my ID to get into clubs back in the day. Like, nah, man. Reminds me of a little French movie called Eden about the rise of Daft Punk. Early on, the two of them would go to clubs and get turned away because nobody knew who they were when they weren't wearing their helmets. Goes to show how much we all need hype men like the Patrick Whalens of the world. On the ID, he sees it reads Kevin Finnerty from Kingman, Arizona. Couple three things here. First, Finnerty. The name comes from Ireland. Translates roughly to Snow White. Then there's Kingman, Arizona. It's most notable for being on Route 66. And Paul Kalanithi, who wrote a devastating book about his life and death, was raised there. Other than that, it's a spot geographically just outside of Las Vegas. Something that maybe we can come back to at the end of 6B. Also, note the cross-like designs on the table and on the rug behind the woman. The picture on the ID barely resembles Tony, by the way. What the hell is right, as he says. At the risk of overusing the we need to talk about Kevin reference, well, we need to talk about Kevin. This guy Kevin was born February 25th, 1959, making him 47 years old. Tony, by the way, was born August 24th, 1959. Tony, even here, all the permutations, says it's not his wallet. This, as we see the word capabilities on a poster as he grabs around his body to accurately identify himself. The word capabilities in an episode where Alzheimer's will factor heavily in a few minutes. It's interesting. He sees he's got the wrong briefcase, too. Wrong guy in general at these not-so-pearly gates. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm here, so I'll try to call the bar, but could you let me in so I don't miss the morning session? Gosh, I really can't. Look, I just flew in from New Jersey. What's the morning session metaphor? Early bird's garage to the judgment queue? Tony doesn't want to miss Colonel Colonna. Colonna is Italian for column, suggesting support or stability. Which is interesting since Tony is in a most compromised situation. He needs all the support he can get. Then he says he's on the list. Also loaded Heaven, the queue. Heaven as a corporate conference is kind of a fascinating idea, too. Airport customs queues might be another interesting take. Regardless, it's a whole new world. What is this I'm-the-wrong-guy thing supposed to mean? Tony's not supposed to be who he was in life? A mob boss of a crime family that doesn't even bear his name? That he's subconsciously making a case that he's not what the world says he is? Tony calls Carmella. She sounds different, too. Then, Tony, my whole life's in the case. What an onion to peel, right? Briefcase shell case, head case, court case. Got my own version of a Kanye lyric going on over here. Also recall, if we're keeping tabs on whereabouts of lives, it's also in the fucking rear view. But what's really being revealed here, like the revelation in Snow Leopard, is that the suitcase, the Snow Leopard, the purpose of the quest, if you will, is a thinly veiled metaphor for sense of self. Who am I? Where am I going? Crazy how we lock onto objects or ideas to find that answer. When it's really, supposedly, inside our very selves. Also worth noting, when he says my whole life's in the case, he looks up. Tony checks back into the Radisson, or he tries to check back into the Radisson. They're completely sold out because there's six conventions in town. Try the Omni, he's told. That guy wasn't talking about one further south than like Carlsbad, was he? The place is like 45 minutes away. But nevertheless, more symbolism. As Omni suggests omnipotence, omnipresence, Om, God. This second hotel was actually the Crown Plaza Hotel on Von Karman. I lived in an apartment just down the street for a year when my wife was a grad student at UC Irvine. When Tony looked out the window at the end of the episode, my apartment was out there somewhere. No beacons, though. Well, maybe the Diamond Jamboree Asian Food Complex. That's definitely still a beacon and one of the few reasons to go back. Anyway, the Radisson guys less than helpful. Great branding for a company started on such high hopes and aspirations named after the French explorer and fur trader Pierre Esprit Radisson. The counter guy makes a face as a ratcheted-down Tony heads off to make other plans. If only he knew who that guy was, right? Would he have handled it differently? What is this, sliding doors now? Note that as Tony walks down a hallway back to the bar, the framing is such that the walls are almost closing in around him. There's a claustrophobia to his existence. To our existence with him in this parallel universe, dream, comatose state. Guy heads back to a bar also has an Edward Hopper kind of feel to it. If, that is, Edward Hopper took a take on airport transit hotel bars in Costa Mesa, it would certainly be a high watermark for Costa Mesa. Tony sees the same bartender from a night before and tells him he was there last night brings up the blackened grouper sandwich he ordered, but then canceled because of his stomach. As if he were the only one who ordered blackened grouper. Quick culinary aside, grouper, along with tilapia and mahi-mahi, are ideal candidates for crusty sandwiches because they hold firm. They don't fall apart once they've been cooked. Stretch, no doubt, but interesting that distressed Tony ordered something firm and stable. And before this off-the-reservation cocksucker goes Anthony Bourdain over here. Mahi-mahi all the way. You ever look at a grouper in the wild? The bartender remembers there was a guy that looked like him. Ordered the same thing. Takeaway? We've all got a doppelganger. And random transit hotels are where you'll find them. He left before you, the bartender says. Deep. Did the wrong guy make it out of the bardo claiming to be Tony Soprano? And he never came back, the bartender continues. Is that an allegory to death? I admit I'm obsessed with this notion of Tony being in a queue. There's no evidence of this or any affirmative statements made by anyone I've come across to suggest this, but after 50 viewings, it's just a scaffolding my mind has put up that I cling to. Tony getting this view of the afterlife. Almost like a fly on the wall. Not unlike us and the show. We are getting this view of the life of a guy most of us are a million miles apart from. But we get front row seats to every space he inhabits. Tony left before us. And he never came back. It's hard to not say that like Clubber Lang and Rocky 3, but I tried. Seriously though, there's actual, literal, real finality to that statement. And I'm sure Chase and his brain trust would never have imagined that line to play so deep after the show's run. Tony asks the bartender if he knows who Kevin Finnerty is. Thanks, T, because we're wondering the same fucking thing. KF, the initials. I even played around with those like a Rubik's Cube for a time. Great talking that I just saw, by the way, on Netflix. Check it out. Yet the best I could do was slip in a weak NBA reference. Kenneth Fareed, the manimal. But even here, all roads lead back to North Jersey, always. Fareed was born in Newark and attended technology high school there, near where the hospital exterior shots were filmed. Guy was the toughest baller in Essex County for a time. Another guy at the bar chimes in, says he drives a Lexus. Does that mean Kevin Finerty drove in from Kingman, Arizona? Not the craziest thing in the world, but company trip and with John Wayne Airport right there. Either way, nice work in of a product placement. Sales were up the following year in the U.S. market. Just saying. But no road trip for Finnerty. It's a joke. Infinity is a play on Finnerty. Finnerty or infinity Drives Alexis, this fucking guy. Doesn't he know what we're going through here? Of course he does. And that's the whole fucking point. Like us, Tony isn't amused. First look we get from him that screamed, Old Tony, or pre-this episode, Tony. Bartender pours him one on the house. And for the first time for me, the connectivity of a bartender at Judgment Day crystallized. Bartenders generally symbolize change. And in some instances, like Dave Matthews' songs, for example, they symbolize religious figures. Getting poured one in a circumstance such as what Tony finds himself in is a form of absolution to my mind. And it engenders acceptance. Like, okay, this might end bad. We might get cut short. And you weren't perfect, Tony. Far from it. But you matter and people love you. And you, too, can be forgiven for your sins. Tony gets a scotch on the rocks. Bartender offers up Glen Levitt. A better than okay scotch. Top 100 rated scotch for sure. But a notch below the Ardbegs, Taliskers, and Lagavulin's of the world. Gotta wrap my heritage and name drop those. But fair to say that shit ain't gonna be lining the walls of a transit hotel. The Glen Levitt distillery, by the way, has been cranking casks of single malt scotch whiskey since 1824. And it's the best-selling single malt in the United States. Drink in hand, Tony asks if Costa Mesa is a nice place to live. Bartender says, Around here, it's dead. Okay, gotta adjust myself on the chair here. This is Chase in the ring, early Tyson, moving calmly about as an opponent negotiates away into a few punches. And Tyson's just staring. Studying. Readying. And then he gets low. Like almost literally ducks. And boom! Round here, it's dead. Can't help but think Chase took a long sip of some rare Bordeaux as he banged that one out. This episode is one onion of dialogue after another. There's levels, and then there are layers. Here, we get levels of layers. Later that night, same place, Tony's looking at the menu, amidst the rager happening all around him. Again, he orders the grouper sandwich. Man with the bad joke comes around, tells him to scrap the sandwich and come eat with him and his two buds. Tony initially passes, but then relents, in a Shonda Rhimes, year of yes kind of way. Then, a woman shows up, Lee. We've never seen her before. But Tony has or at least acts like it. At dinner, one of the guys is telling Tony about his company, U.S. Drillbit, aerospace and industrial equipment. Guy just sold a gear and coupling unit to Wheelabrator. is a real outfit. They make wheel-blasting and air-blasting products. Their products smoothen rough surfaces, or vice versa. Common use cases include lettering and engraving on tombstones. That's the morbid end of the spectrum. For your garden-variety regularness-of-life spectrum, they're used to clean industrial and commercial structures. Full circle, the gear this guy's company sold to Wheelabrator, a gear and coupling unit, are more or less the centerpiece or where the fulcrum of power lies in the blaster. Now look, I rented a pressure washer once, so that's the extent of my qualifications on that front but I like the thought of an air blaster metaphor to the show. I doubt Chase wore goggles and a jumpsuit when he scribed his masterpiece, but the visual is not that much unlike a diamond miner. Constantly refining over a career, over and over, combustion after combustion, to extract that diamond. And Tony Soprano is as good a gear and coupling unit as one can get in a character. Sommelier Corner, the bottle of wine next to Tony is Corvina, an Italian red. Corvina means raven, which of course suggests loss or something ominous. And recall, we've seen a raven before in this show. Infortunate son, when Chris got made. Pontecorvo, too. Could mean things are trending down for Tony, here on out. Let's call this the Bardo revelation and see if it holds water as we come to the conclusion of this version of a Himalayan climb. The woman mentioned earlier is at dinner, too. And she's curious about how Tony made the jump from selling patio furniture to precision optics. Bad deadpan, of course, would be all the better to laser focus his gaze on her. But we get an interesting piece of information. Bardo Tony used to sell patio furniture. And you can't really do that out the back of a Crown Vic. So we're realizing that this Tony is not of that world the world we know up to this point. And on patio furniture sales, well, sales are sales, man. And the more competitive and opaque the market, the better. Ever try to negotiate with an outdoor furniture seller? Like most things, there's a ton of margin. Shit gets thrown in all the time. When I bought my big green egg from a local outdoor furniture store, they cornered me and upsold the shit out of me on stuff. If you can hit numbers selling patio furniture in the Northeast year-round, you can sling pretty much anything. Ice to Eskimos. Wood to a forest. Cage to a lion. Rodney Dangerfield over here. Also worth noting, Tony mentioned selling patio furniture on Route 22 in the first season. I think the college episode, while in session with Melfi. The patio furniture business, per recent reports, is around an 8 billion annual business. Not quite as big as the waste management industry, which is around a 350 billion annual business, growing at a faster compound growth clip. But still, Barone Outdoors could have done okay, especially if Big Green Eggs and all their ancillary shit were part of its product offerings. Now, with Precision Optics, we see Tony made the jump from B to C to b to b generally a signal of upward mobility in sales. In both the Bardo and the real world, he's a climber. But this version is much less interesting for obvious reasons. The other version of Tony can do things none of us can Or most of us wouldn't dare try. But he thinks, acts, and feels like us. He just goes to places we can't. In some way, we envy that. It's not so much that you want that, but you definitely want to watch the extremes of your mind play out in Tony. You want a glimpse of the way things could go, or how you should handle shit, to a degree. And I don't know about you, but I like seeing ambiguous lines in the sand get continually stepped over and crossed. This version, though, quarter-over-quarter sales breaker, weekend warrior, Airport lobby regular. That's just too close to home. It's like an NBA journeyman. Sure, most of us will never even get there. But it's attainable. Boss of a crime family, however begrudgingly. Alex Honnold free-climbing El Cap and documenting that shit on tape. The 2004 Detroit Pistons breaking a Laker dynasty in five with no stars. That shit is off the charts. The New Jersey Nets that year, by the way, had a worse record, but were seeded higher than the Pistons. Zellman put in those phone calls. That's some electoral college math right there. Anyways, how exactly did Tony make the pivot from patio sales to precision optics? And did I make the pivot from Tony Soprano to NBA basketball? Well, like my wife says, that's a good question. (laughs) And on that note, he excuses himself to check in at home. Two of the other guys left, but paid the check. They never got the you eat, I pay memo. It is, after all, just sitting in Finn's desk drawer just down the 5 in Mission Viejo. Note that when Tony asks where Jeff in Kansas went, one of the guys says, to bed. But if you listen to it, it sounds like Tibet. Lee and two others stayed back to toast the man, Tony, whose team snatched the brass ring 12 consecutive quarters. That's three years for any of you non-math people out there. This is a precision optic dynasty over here. A three-peat. Even the Bardo is adorned in threes. It's always a faster gun. Every time I hear brass ring, by the way, and I can't shake this, I think of that Matthew Perry, Salma Hayek movie, uh, Fool's Rush In, set to the soundtrack of Beastie Boys and Brass Monkey. I know. Satanic black magic. Sick shit. I mean, who am I? Where am I going? Join the club. Gotta say, after reading Snow Leopard, I feel better about that statement. I was in that club. Still kind of am. I mean, who knows if we ever really leave it. it. Used to make me uncomfortable, though. Like, oh shit. I'm still gonna be asking that question when I'm 46 years old. I gotta beat that. Gotta have that answered before then. I gamified it. The working title name of the game was Anxiety-Inducing Own Worst Enemy, Squares. Look, Snow Leopard didn't shift my mind in an instant. Bits and pieces of its message have been swirling around for a while, but the book crystallized it. Everything comes down to timing, right? Who are we? Where are we going? Well, we're going. And like a mountain? Like a tree? Like Perth Amboy? Like Caravaggio? Like James Harden travel stepbacks? Like Polly's plastic wrap? We are. As the three others get up and leave, Tony is transfixed by a screen that reads, Are sin, disease, and death real? Show's entering vanilla sky territory here made me wonder if mescaline factored into both stories. And I think that question is best left to be answered on mescaline or other comparable psychedelic. But who am I, Michael Pollan now? That question is followed by a cross and a voiceover. Now is the time you can clearly hear his voice. What if you hear it before? Does that mean we can walk in and out of the bardo in real time as we churn through the regularness of life? Then outside, we go from a cross to Tony making out with Lee. How's that for sacrament? For rejoicing in his love, as the TV instructs. Then helicopters overhead. Nice symbol for Carmela looming overhead, or over his shoulder, perhaps. This Tony doesn't go all the way, though. He doesn't cross lines we expect to be crossed. You talk about them back there a lot, she says as if to mean Tony's not ready to go just yet. Copters are louder, trying to pierce the Bardo membrane. He says he could be some other guy tonight, meaning this version of himself could be a bad guy tonight, as opposed to the normal state of things. And they both look up, lights shining bright. She says they're looking for a perp, and he stops and beams right at her. Does she know? We hear electronics, some medical machine beeping, the gears and couplers of life. Tony's life. And we leave Costa Mesa for a moment and return to North Jersey. Tony's eyes somewhat open, his own precision optics at work to a degree. Tears, iodine in his mouth, disinfectant for his post-surgery torso, a ventilator tube taped precariously to his face, not exactly Neo in the Matrix. Note, the doctor's name is Ba, or Hart, if we go back to the song at the beginning of Members Only. Will his bedside manner rise to the level of his name? We learn Tony was peaceful and then started convulsing. Doc calls for Ativan, commonly used before, during, or after surgery, to calm a patient. We see Carmela weathered and worn down on her own journey of sorts to see how this is going to play out. And Meadow, perfecting the stoicism she's expressed since day one. He rips his tubes out, his equivalent of stuffing himself with a pillow, like he said to Melfi, or involuntary reaction to rejecting what's happening to his body. Seems like even in the Bardo, Tony suffers from a form of panic attacks. Then, as soon as the doctor says take the family out, Tony speaks. Who am I? Where am I going? The bardo does bleed into the regularness of life, it would seem. Certainly in Chase's depiction of it. Carm shouts back, we're right here with you. Doc insists they leave. Getting the breathing tube back in is something they're not going to want to see. Mr. Bedside Manor over here. So much for that ba. Then, AJ shows up, says Matt's car wouldn't start. That's why he's late. As irritating as this might seem and remains for many, it's accurate and relatable on so many levels. My mom spent time in the ICU when I was in high school, almost died. I was there every day for a week, but I remember stalling, being strangely AJ, creating a self-indulgent bubble around myself. Things were good in my life. Grades, girls, sports. I was 16. I wasn't ready to potentially have to watch a parent die in front of me in a hospital. What is that, even? Like, what the fuck? And so, I thought that awkward distance and denial was pulled off perfectly. Later, Carmela and Meadow walk out to the waiting room like Kings fans after three consecutive playoff losses to the Lakers in the early 2000s. This hospital, by the way, was filmed in North Hollywood, same place as the show Scrubs. But the exteriors were New Jersey, of course. Pauly's snoring, comedy amidst the chaos. Christopher, Silvio, and Vito are also there. Everybody's interested. But there's a duality here that goes back to Carm telling Tony he has no friends. If you were to make a pie chart and carve out how much of this was genuine concern versus how much of this was angling for the future, it'd be interesting to see where each one of these cats would fall. Vito, we know, he makes it very clear. And it started as far back as last season when Benny was in the hospital. His pie chart is all about that edge. Guy's been inhaling more oxygen than calories. His head's filled with air thinks he's got a shot at being boss of the family. So, Carmine's you to go home and man the phones. Polly Van Helsing, let's go. That's a reference, of course, to Monster Hunter Van Helsing, played by Hugh Jackman in 2004. Based on the character Abraham Van Helsing from the Bram Stoker book, Dracula. Thanks to cinema and legendary performers, when I think of Dracula, I think of one person. Gary Oldman. Vito says he'll take A.J. home. It's on his way. Paulie calls bullshit. He lives in Belleville, which is in the opposite direction. Paulie also says you already bought the Shvou Yadel. In other words, enough ass-kissing for one day. Then the doctor comes out. Tony's back on the ventilator. He mentions a mucus plug, which confused me because such a thing is usually associated with childbirth. But maybe there was a buildup around the wound as the body began to heal. I don't know. He says the bullet tore up his pancreas and damaged the gallbladder. To which I wondered, do we need those to live? The pancreas converts food we eat into fuel for the body. The gallbladder makes bile, which helps you digest stuff. You can live without a pancreas, but you'll need regular injections of insulin and digestive enzymes. And you can live without a gallbladder too. The body needs that organ even less. It's basically an oil pan for the bile your liver naturally produces. The problem, though, with all this, he says, is sepsis, an infection in the blood. Normally, the body releases chemicals into the blood to fight infection. Sepsis happens when there's an imbalance. The doc's final thought here is that we're not looking at a very good outcome. Now, there isn't really a playbook on how to deal with or handle situations like this. But Edie Falco's performance is really all you need as a guy. She reminds us in these moments to just be, be, be. Carmela asks if they can call Dr. Plepler. Who's that? And is his first name Richard? Doc says Tashlin will drop by too. Now, when you say a doctor's name without the doctor prefix, there are certified celebrities in their field. This Tashlin and the fact that he's stopping by is like being greeted by the Pope. But as we'll see, Meadow could give a fuck. Carmela asks, does he know that he's dying? Great question. Do we know? And what a paradox, right? Because if we do know, that means we die. And we can never stick around to let those around us know that we know. So we'll never know whether a person knows or not. But what a question. And to a certain extent, we owe George Lucas a debt of gratitude on this front. As he gave us Yoda, who put his affairs in order while dying, and let us know. Yoda spoke. Final note on this scene. That dramatic, overpowering camera orbit to reveal her meltdown. Christopher comes over to comfort her, but the weight she puts in front of the camera makes him feel like a minnow. It's all her ocean right there. What a moment. If Junior were putting together a top ten list of fucking selling it, that would be right up on top. Sadly, Richie would never make such a list. Later that night, we see Meadow napping holding Chris's hand, who's also sleeping. Goodwill huntings buffing the floor. Regularness of life. Great contextual spatial touch. Vito leans against a wall just outside a vending machine corner. Don't know why, but it was a very Godfather vibe there. Also somewhat suggestive, right? Fucking guys feigning a healthier lifestyle and Atkins this and weight loss that, but where do we find them? loitering around a snack corridor, guarding that inventory like a left tackle protects his quarterback. Or for all the Europeans that freak out every time an American sports reference is dropped, like a cricketer protecting his fucking wickets. That's me putting my hands up like Russell Crowe and Gladiator right over here on that one. To the soundtrack of Futures, mask off. Only today, a rework of the lyrics are probably more appropriate. Mask off? fuck it, mask on. Carmela's sitting with Tony, holding his hand, his chest getting pumped with air in a rhythmic cadence, and then, I'm out of here. Back to wherever I was before this. Suggesting the regularness of Tony's life was too fucking much for him or something. Get me back to that Bardo. Tony walks up to the counter of the Omni. Only this time he's going by finnerty. He hands over Kevin's visa for incidentals, And as he does, we see two Buddhist monks. These monks, I learned, were inspired by the snow leopard, which in turn inspired the arc of this podcast episode. His room is 728. Does that mean anything? Well, actually, yeah. When your guardian angel sends you the number 728, it supposedly means you have something to live for. Your voice matters. And to stop being afraid to live. 728 has a carpe diem quality to it. So there's that. Hope, however veiled, that Tony's going to pull through. But also, seven. That's the lowest rung of Dante's Inferno. The seventh circle. And him waiting for the elevator later suggests he's stuck there. Him taking the stairs is in a way taking matters into his own hands. Walking out of the seventh circle like Moses parting the Red Sea. Tony's like, nah, I'm not done yet. While waiting for the elevator, the two monks approach, thinking he's Kevin Finnerty. Interesting. This thought that before you go upstairs, literally or figuratively, two monks will encircle you and pepper you with questions and, worst case scenario, a lawsuit. They say two things in life are guaranteed, right? death, and taxes. Many might throw in an honorable mention three, the threat of litigation. Tony flips. He's ecstatic. Do you know him? Finally, he, we, this can all come to an end. He can get his suitcase back, and we can get our show back. But no. They're suing him. They apparently have no other option. This after trying to get in touch with him for months and months, because Finity's heating system failed and the monastery was unbearable as a result. Which begs the question, always has, always will, how Zen is litigation? How enlightened is a lawsuit? It's an interesting question for which there really isn't an answer, since Buddhism is not a commandment-based religion. There is no thou shalt not sue. There is a teaching, though, that says if you're wronged, so far as getting limbs cut off, anger is not an option. In other words, try to pass away with a peaceful mind. Most interesting of all, though, is that by suing or the like, it suggests evidence that we can't let go of something. And that's a huge limitation to achieving enlightenment. I think the message is, fight for what's right, but do it with calm and without malice. Fair to say, these monks, then, have a long way to go. And Chase is demonstrating despite outward appearances and presentation, even the holiest or furthest down the path to enlightenment, whatever that is, at least on the face of it, are among the greatest of hypocrites. The younger monk slaps Tony across the face. Lose your arrogance. This after Tony denies being Kevin Finnerty. Again, off the reservation monk over here. Guy's got his own problems at home and he didn't leave that shit at the door. It's just a disproportionate response to what Tony said. Not to mention the relative absurdity of the underlying issue. A crapped out heating system. Ever heard of layering? The bellhop holds Tony back and they both fall over. Kind of always saw that as the monk's wind blew them back. T wants them stopped. But paradoxically, he shows restraint. Bardo Tony is on the level. Q Mac DeMarco. Okay, we're in the hotel room, and Tony's telling Carmela what happened. They talk about whether Tony should go to the monastery where he might be able to get a word in edgewise and track down Finnerty. But he says all he wants to do is come home. Again, that's so layered. And not to beat a dead horse, no pun intended. But a big part of Snow Leopard centers around the return home as being the biggest and most revealing part of the journey. The desire to return to the start. Very alchemist undertones there, too. Carm says you never wanted to go to this conference. Red, you never wanted this life. And a reference to the grass is always greener in both of these Tony existences. Kind of telling. I miss you. Miss you too, but you're off in your own world. She's gonna see if Donitz, his boss, can help. Now, certainly a reach, but worth mentioning, especially in the context of bosses. Donitz was a Nazi-era admiral who briefly succeeded Hitler. The next morning, Tony heads to an elevator with a sign that reads "Out of order. Please bear with us." Two Tonys call back, even here. In the bardo, also a signifier that he's stuck on level seven. He opts for the stairwell, and there's so much tension in that stairwell vis a vis the camera choices and cuts. A slip and fall is imminent. And yep, there it is, out cold. Sopranos and Stairwells also, of course, conjures up thoughts of Melfi, another doc whose name needs no prefix before it. Cut to Carm splashing cold water on her face perhaps a good reminder for us to do the same at this point. Meadow's converting Celsius to Fahrenheit calculations in her head when Dr. Plepler walks in. And that's impressive. That five-ninths, nine-fifths always threw me. I always needed one of Patsy's tape calculators to figure it out. Comparison note on this Plepler, definitely as crisp and tan as the Richard of Pleplers. We learned Tony's amylase is 41. Is that good? Amylase is an enzyme in your saliva. That breaks down sugar, like Fallout Boy. The test that Plepler is talking about, though, measures amylase in the blood. High levels suggest a problem with your pancreas, and normal levels are between 30 to 110 units per liter. Next on our pocket medical field guide, Doc asks if hematocrit is still okay. That's a test that measures the proportion of red blood cells in your blood. Red blood cells, of course, deliver oxygen throughout your body. Not unlike the way RBG delivers verdicts from the bench. Sorry, got a little acronym happy there. Normal counts differ for men and women, but 35 to 50% is a healthy range. Then Barbara comes in. This is serious. We see the wound. Looks like a crater. What a fucking visual, right? Gaping void. And she gives a look acknowledging her role in this, however indirect. Dr. Plepler, it's L, not R Plepler, by the way, says everything looks okay, surgery-wise, and that Tashlin is the one to know about the sepsis. Tashlin is officially the snow leopard of this episode. He explains the induced coma. He's snowed with Ativan. Perhaps another reach, but the snow reference took me right back to the Himalayas. Carmella doesn't understand. But who the fuck does in these moments? It's to control the seizures and control the fever with antibiotics. Meadow tries to say his temperature is down some. Something positive. But the doc immediately pivots to degrees of brain damage in the event he were to survive. Quickly reminding everybody about the pecking order in that room. Meadow inquires about the antibiotic, and the doc throws her a look. Makes me think back to Chris talking to Polly and Pine Barrens. What are you, a doctor now? Doctor gathers himself and tells them both to talk to Tony, keep him engaged, play some of his favorite music. And then he gets his last word in by reminding them that they're at a level one trauma center. He says that without him and his team, Tony would have been dead 12 hours ago. Level one, by the way, is the highest level trauma center. There are five levels total. Carm thanks the doctor for doing his job. Meadow is sick about it. You treat these guys like rock stars, she says. And on that note, Janice comes in. She left Nika with Bobby's mother. The Terminator's wife? Son of a... When do we get to meet her? Janice goes in to see Tony and loses her shit. Love the cut to Tony. He almost lets out a Jesus. Is this fucking necessary? The level of detail in the choices presented. Wrapped. Cut to Junior playing quiz show. Only thing missing from this frame was John Turturro. Prosecutors and their proxies are testing his competence to stand for trial for the shooting of Tony. Junior's lawyer explains to him that it doesn't matter. It wasn't intentional. He was confused and disoriented. Then Junior calls Tony a depression case. He shot himself, if anything. Which to me is about as much evidence as ever as Junior's mental facility. But hey, As with screenwriting, lawyering is all about storytelling. Cut to Tony. Chris is sitting with him now, watching over him closely. Sinister thoughts or pure thoughts? Think back to long-term parking, then all the way back to the pilot. Could he do something sinister here? Would he? Does he have the balls? Versus, like... Is he that much of a gunner? Thought crosses the mind, is all I'm saying. And that ambiguity is the cornerstone of everything we see. Like, the camera's in focus. The objects before us are all crystal clear. But everything's opaque. Inner thoughts. Theirs. Ours. David's. Cut to Corvo's funeral. Sad to say, a funeral brings us back to normalcy. But hey, we take what we can get. Silvio's taking charge. You got any beefs? I'm the one you come to. Did he rehearse? First order of business, Vito wants the sports book in Roseville. By rights. It was Pontecorvo's before him. His argument is that he's a feudal lord. And as such, whatever was Pontecorvo's escheats to him. But Chris isn't feeling that. Ever since Adriana, he's like Drake in that song In My Feelings. You know, and when you popped off on your ex, she deserved it. I thought you were the one from the jump that confirmed it. Track money, Benny. I buy you champagne, but you love some henny. block like you, Jenny. Next in the queue of grievances, Alleyboy wants to sever ties with Junior. Cut him out. End this embarrassment. Vito's on board. Says he Marvin Gate is own nephew which was a reference to the singer who was shot dead by his own father. And also, Vito said gay. He's dropping seeds this episode like Tyler, the creator. Interestingly, similar to Junior's situation, Gay's dad fired two clips into his son, but got a reduced six-year sentence on account he had a brain tumor. He lived until 1998, where he died in a nursing home. Next, more Vito this time to Bobby. Bobby, all due respect, where the fuck were you that night? Why was the skipper babysitting Junior? I had other family obligations. It's my wife. I like that Vito got this moment. He's young, scrappy, and hungry, perhaps literally, like Alexander Hamilton in this moment, and he's not throwing away his shot. Everybody in that room is a rival at this point. Chris waits until Vito leaves to talk shit about him. Now, he's always been a behind-the-back guy. It was there in the first episode. Did email Kolar from behind. And was on the outs with Tony from day one. Devious motherfucker. Kiss your ass to your face, but tear you apart from behind. But now it's loaded into a semi-automatic weapon, and he's just letting it fly. He's got to make an issue out of everything lately. And it's got to catch up with him. The question is when. Paulie says Roseville's been Junior's territory since the Big Bang, which means it should go to Bobby. Point being, Vito already rakes. But Bobby was a caretaker, a piss boy, stool softener page boy, or whatever. Does that entitle him to Junior's estate, as it were? Can't help but think that if Tony were listening to this, it'd go back to that table with Carmella when they argued over their split. You're entitled to shit. Personally, I say they should have settled this on the court. Vito versus Bobby, one-on-one, first to 11, threes or twos, make it, take it. Quick, easy. Vito's likely much more formidable now, movement-wise at least, since his days on the court with Ralphie. Jesus Shuttleworth over here. anyway, Polly calls Vito a kiss-ass, then says he's buying tea a stereo for the room. This show is hypocrisy in the same sentence. Chris awkwardly says, he don't need that. How the fuck does he know? Wait for it. We'll know why soon enough. Again, devious. Next, Chris aims his scope at Pontecorvo. Calls him a fucking mutt. At his own funeral. His own pledge brother, for Christ's sake. Pissed he took the easy way out. Who wouldn't like to take the easy way out, he says. Regularness of life is too much for Chris, but he stuck it out. Sill, in a moment of empathy, suggests maybe he was suffering from inoperable cancer or some shit. This after knowing he told Pontecorvo the Florida thing was off. Always made me wonder if he felt a little complicit here. I'm talking single-digit percentage points, but still. These guys are human. Cut to Hesh in a waiting room donated by Mary Pusillo, or the memory of Mary Pusillo. That surname, by the way, was recently tied to a major mob bust in Jersey called Operation Fistful. That Pusillo was a Genovese associate. Anyway, Hesh says suicide runs in families. It's true it's one of two prevalent risk factors for suicide, that and psychiatric illness. Janice is unmoved. Then Vito says maybe he was a homo and felt there was no one else he could talk to about it. Janice gives a not-so-subtle eye roll to his not-so-subtle comment. And a great autopsy observation. Janice's baby immediately looks at Vito after he says that. Cut to the hospital. Meadow says AJ came by. Carmella says he was supposed to bring Tony Bennett's box set from home. Speaking of, anybody else see in Tony Bennett a slightly better-looking Phil Leotardo? Anyway, Tony and Tony Bennett? That's news to us. When have we ever heard Tony listen to Tony Bennett? Got me wondering if Tony burned a CD of Tony Bennett favorites, what would he include? And would he write in Sharpie, Tony B, on the disc? Just wondered that, and a couple of songs came to mind. One for my baby, and one more for the road, in honor of Fran Felstein. I want to be around for his current predicament. They all laughed when reflecting on the executive game and the good life when driving to and from whitecaps, a.k.a. the Gulf of Sorrento. Now, don't get me wrong. Tony Bennett is cool. Legend. But what about Steely Dan, Carm? Or the Shylights? What could be more perfect than I'd be in trouble if you left me now? AJ's outside talking to a reporter. They're brainstorming series ideas. Growing up soprano. My first reaction today was, damn, too close. And where are the masks? Carmella comes out and snatches him away from her. Same way as Zion Williamson takes the ball out of people's hands after they rebound it. Everybody's pitching in except him. Well, he was pitching shows outside, but that's different. She sends him off to a deli on Broad Street for bagels. An assortment. Love the delivery of that word. The meaning behind it. The intention. But did you notice how She hands him enough cash to buy the deli on Broad Street, along with all the bagels in it? Back in Tony's room, Carmella pulls out a stereo and says Chris sent it. Ah, the cobwebs are slowly removing. Speaking of, where's Artie? He's conspicuously absent. Now, did Chris beat Polly to the punch? Or did he flat-out steal Polly's idea and take the credit for himself? She starts talking to him about med how much she's grown up what she knows this over his Darth Vader breathing apparatus. Always remember guys there's good in them both. She pulls out some CDs she brought from her car starts with Smoke in the Water by Deep Purple a nod back to the season 2 premiere that song is on when Tony crashes into a barricade. Those situations always make me wonder if they got a 2 for 1 sink deal. Note, we see a shot of the pinboard behind her, and there is as yet no discernible Ojibwe saying attached to it. If that means nothing to you now, it's okay. It will, and if you're anything like me, once you know, it'll never leave you. She says, "Anthony, Anthony, Anthony," as we cut. I always wondered her intent there, inducing some religious miracle. Saying his full name like that? Also, again, the number three. The cuts to Chris, driving Johnny Sack's guess now his Maserati, pulls up to Satriales. Great shot choice to convey that from inside the shop, looking out, with two pig heads merchandised in the window front, you know, for those butcher shop window shopper types. This is followed by another great shot, a pan following him to the door. It's just different, especially in this world. It's rigorous, measured cinema. Almost as if someone is there to greet him. The ghost of Emil Kolar, maybe? The camera finishes with a three-quarter orbit pirouette around Christopher, where it's revealed that Agents Harris, and what's his name again? are enjoying more heroes. Chris comes in like wild Bill Hickok approaching a guy sitting in his seat at the saloon. Ho, Sheriff of Nottingham. My kingdom for a mortadale, huh? Of course, references to Robin Hood and William Shakespeare in one efficient slice of Moltisanti speak. Harris is concerned about Tony, but Chris won't talk. But it's not for a scoop, as Chris thinks. He goes on to mock their work on terror. How goes the war on terror anyway? i working up. I heard Fieldcrest reported a truckload of towels missing. Fieldcrest, of course, is a luxury towel maker, among other various types of things. And it's now exclusively sold at Target. Agent House of Cards, Ron Goddard, that's it, says they're spending their time trying to interdict, fancy fucking SAT word for intercept, the financial networks that fund the terror cells worldwide. You know, slightly more involved than your run-of-the-mill street rips. Always made me think of the scripts we prepare to recite for moments such as this. Too human, too classic. I interned for Morgan Stanley Dean Witter in college for a stockbroker. I used to intercept tickers that were 8% off their high. Why 8%? Fuck if he told me. But if I told people I interdicted laggards from interfering with clients' diversified pool of assets, I sounded like a fucking high-frequency trader to all the aunties at my mom's dinner parties. And that's what matters, right? Anyway, they say Chris should pick up the phone if any Middle Easterners or otherwise cross his path doing things like hijacking trucks. Naturally, Chris box. He won't talk to them but they drive their point home by bringing up Matouche. Chris downplays it and throws Adriana under the bus again. If self-preservation were a tree, Chris would be a sequoia. Back on Carmella, and one of the best performances of the series, set to the music of Tom Petty's American Girl. It's later in the day as evidenced by the light. Also, the clock proves this by reading 637. Before Tom Petty, we hear doo wop music. There's a moon out tonight by the Capris. She switches it to American Girls, saying that it's a song Tony played the whole weekend down on Long Beach Island. That's the barrier island that runs a big chunk of the coastal length of New Jersey. That song, sadly, was the last song Tom Petty ever played live before dying in 2017. Big sync for film and TV, too. Beyond the Sopranos. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Silence of the Lambs, and more recently, The Handmaid's Tale. She mentions Artie and Charmaine and when they broke up for the first time. The first of many. Nice touch, as we're in on that joke. And we'll take that fucking boutonniere, thank you very much. She mentions Charmaine's behavior around water. Always took that as oil and water symbolism. Artie being Water to Charmaine's oil. Regardless, this is human. This is real. Regularness of life. Edie makes it so meaningful and important to pull from Snow Leopard again. It's the epitome of the doctrine of hard realism. Charm, we learn, got cramps eating a calzone, and Tony had to rescue her. To which I ask, When has the word calzone ever been used in language and not elicited a laugh or a smile? I'm asking. She breaks down beautifully, but manages to squeeze out a pep talk. Strong as a bull, you're going to get through this. Basically the exact opposite of everything she's heard from the experts. Because if you don't believe you're going to catch a glimpse of the snow leopard, Why would anyone even bother? As she sits down next to him, the camera pulls back to reveal the room. For the first time, I wondered, where's Melfi? Why didn't she come by? To hell with protocol. This feels big. Too big to sit out. Carm brings up the pilot, going to hell. She's apologetic. It's a sin, and she will be judged for it. You're a good father. You care about your friends. But she can't bring herself to say good husband. And rightfully so. But she does say she loves him. And he's not going to hell. There's a long lock on her face. Great acting. She's just so good. And her syncopations set to the crescendo of Tom Petty's song are quite affecting. Just enough emotion to let you feel. Cut to Tony or Kevin or both. Could be Castor Troy and Sean Archer and Off at this point. He's in an ER. A new doc says there were things on his CT he didn't like, so he ordered an MRI. Throws it up on the lights. He says there are black holes in his brain that show oxygen deprivation, which suggests Alzheimer's. Tony's response of what? Is writing craftsmanship of biblical proportion. E.B. White got up out of his grave for that one. Tony calls it a death sentence, and he lets this doctor know that he's not even Kevin Finerty. And when the doc asks him what his name is, he says, What's it matter? I'm not going to know myself soon. Another revelatory line if you listen to it enough times. What's it matter? What's past is past. You are what you are now. Nothing before matters. Screams presence. Controlling what you can control. And not worrying about much else. Doc says he's fine, except for the minor concussion. After a fall like that, he could have broken his neck. Again, paralleling what happened outside his mind. That shot would have killed anybody else. And that extra weight he put on in some strange twist of fate was a form of body armor. As the doc leaves, when Tony cries out, I'm lost, that's just another morsel to put in our quotations book. How many times on our upward climb through whatever does that come out of us? Now, back to Tony, Tony Tony, that is, Meadows visiting. Says AJ wanted to come, but got a real bad stomach flu. Her law firm has been cool about her being there. And Finn's coming out from California. She says she was reading something and wrote it down to share with them, By Jacques Prévert. Note that her hands shake as she reads it. The poem is Pater Noster. Prévert's take on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. And it has a certain last rites kind of feel to it. And if that was the end for Tony, pretty fitting that it came from Meadow, as their connectivity, I've always felt, transcends the show itself. Autopsy said this poem saved Tony's life. And I agree. Prevere mentions the pools of the Tuileries Garden in Paris. And I think the part that jolted Tony was this. Because you know what's in those pools? Ducks. Cut to the Soprano family backyard. Another establishing shot for normalcy. Carmela's inside, stand-up sleeping in the shower. Downstairs, AJ and Meadow are enjoying the spread of food, no doubt dropped off by every wife in that thing of theirs. Bobby's there, too, quietly enjoying Meadow watches on as AJ stacks food on his plate. What happened to the stomach flu? He says a little Pepto-Bismol was all that was needed. Then it's revealed that everybody's there. Vito, Polly, Patsy, Silvio. Vito passes gas while nibbling on a green of some kind. Sitting in the same spot Tony would have been if he was watching TV in there. Positive mental visualization for Vito. King on his throne over here. Later, AJ walks in on Meadow sleeping to ask about the Prius. She says she's tired, been up all night, doesn't give a shit about hybrid cars. And AJ drops a poor you. Interesting. While his dad's down and potentially out, he manifests his family genes full tilt. He continues railing against Meadow. You never gave two fucks about the environment. This with the Dadaist Max Ernst painting over his shoulder, connoting, in part, the burning down of nature. He storms out, but there's no cut. He comes back in. She's his only safe haven. Even she knows it. The only other person who could possibly understand this shit is her. He's lucky in that sense. She's a much better sister than Janice ever was. Then AJ hears reporters outside and goes from being embarrassed to protective, more like his sister. He yells fuck you right into a camera and we see that unlike Meadow who knows who she is and where she's going his identity is still fluid and spilling out. Cut to Ro and Carm in a hospital cafeteria. Ro says she'll sit with Tony. Carm says family only, but thanks. Thought that was kind of harsh. Why so steely? For all intents and purposes, she is family. Carm brings up Angie. The whole roster of characters in this show is coming out now. Says she called. Guess she's busy over there with her body shop. Carm feels disrespected. She's old school too. Also relatable on several levels. There's always an awkward internal negotiation when a loved one or extended loved one, is down with a health issue. How much is too much? Kind of feels like too much is never enough. I'm dealing with something in that realm as we speak, and I think back to this Angie moment often. Then, Ro asks if she'd like grits. What the fuck do grits have to do with anything right now? Likely comfort, but Carmella and grits? Doesn't add up could also speak to that awkwardness I just mentioned. I've certainly said equally awkward or asinine things in similar situations. Then AJ walks up. Look who's here. Hey, Fabio, I'm available. Ro is so great at turning on a dime, playing the room. Also, Fabio's been referenced before in the show too. The first time was to her own son, Jackie. And then we get this incredibly powerful, timely exchange between Carm and Ro. Ro starts things off by saying that AJ shouldn't get a pass, should assume some responsibility. Carm protects, protects, protects. And then Ro takes the gloves off. That's a fascinating psychological nugget. But it don't change the fact that if that kid don't pull his end in this, he's never going to forgive himself. And nobody else should either. It's just that Tony has always loomed so large for AJ. Well, maybe it's just that AJ is a selfish boy who doesn't give a shit. I'm sorry your son is no longer with us, but don't use mine as a guinea pig for your ideas on parenting. I never saw you take a hard line. Well, Why do you think I'm talking to you like this? Roe handles that blow no problem. Why do you think I'm talking to you like this? Carmela softens, then defends AJ again. Tony's open incision is very hard to see. Carm as a mother is ride or die till the very end. Rose eye roll as a friend, never better than right there. Cut to Soprano motorcade, making its way up the driveway. Silvio leads in a Yukon, driving Carmela and Meadow. Polly kicks all the photographers to the curb. Inside, Meadow pours herself a drink while Carmela answers questions about Tony and Junior. Note Polly peeps his head in to listen. Subtle. It says a lot about Polly, too. Also note Meadow repeats aloud that Finn is flying full fare coach. Why? Is She trying to get Carm to pay? We see him, Finn that is, in dental school, some kind of lab. Molding a retainer. Nice hair, by the way. Dental school is sucking for him, so coming out serves two masters. Carm's done answering questions, but the investigators mentioned that Junior made mention of the McGuire sisters, the singing trio, and Sam Giancana. It has to do with the Kennedy assassination. What's all that about? Well, briefly, one of the sisters, Phyllis, was involved with Giancana, who was a boss in Chicago, and is claimed to be one of the reasons Kennedy got elected. Phyllis was subpoenaed during one of his cases because he made a claim she knew all about JFK and RFK's transgressions. Now Bobby's listening in. Nostradamus predicting style. Carm rolls her eyes and says Tony was three when Kennedy was shot. There's three again. She sits down, Bobby consoles her, and we cut to late night at the hospital. AJ's there this time. Sees Janice and Barbara walking out, Jan still crying hysterically. He moves in. Sees the tubes and fluids of different colors moving in both directions. Then Carmella enters and sees AJ talking to Tony from afar and stays back. Great moment. AJ's telling Tony about Shelby GT400s, a far cry from the Prius, but really the point here is anything to distract him from what's happening. And also maybe to shine a light on this duality of Tony as manifested through his son, saying one thing but doing another. He says the Mustang's not as expensive as the M3 he used to talk about getting all the time. And these car references are so accurate for the era, by the way. Cut to the bing. Ahmed, first we've seen him, and Muhammad are drinking at the bar and greet Chris. They know Tony, too. Couple of three seconds of screen time, and these guys are already players? Is this a beat for what Harris was talking about? Or a red herring to throw us? Let's see. Cut to next day. Hospital. AJ in a blanket. He stayed the night. It's actually 11.30 a.m. Nobody bothered them all that time. AJ says he's going to get Uncle Junior for this. You're my dad. And I'm going to put a bullet in his fucking mommy head. Rough, but that's the emotional response we've been waiting for. Meadow comes in to relieve him. Immediately notice his fever's up, and AJ says he overheard the doctors talking about it. He goes out to see Carm, and she's so proud. He harnesses that proudness by dropping a non-sequitur that he's flunked out. 1.4. The dean said there's no point in coming back. With your father in a coma. No, I didn't tell Dad. Be positive, everybody said. My God. I tried really hard in philosophy, but that professor... With your father in a coma... That second with your father in a coma was a gift to us. Trying to find a silver lining here, AJ says he tried really hard in philosophy. Proof that the grip Nietzsche puts on a person is real. Carm goes in the room and says, Anthony, can you hear us? Again, thoughts on why she says his full name. Why not just Tony? Is it just seriousness? Stakes? Differentiation? What makes us say and do the things we do in moments like that? And finally, we cut back to the Bardo. And what Bardo would be complete without Kenny G-sounding music? It's actually an instrumental of Day After Day, the Badfinger song. The original is quite good. And there's a prescient lyric. Looking out of my lonely gloom day after day. Bring it home, baby. Make it soon. And as we opened, we close inside a Costa Mesa hotel room. A Hotel California, if you will. Complete with the shimmering light up ahead in the distance. At least one more time Tony has to stop for the night. Shoes off, crunches his toes like John McClane recommends in Die Hard. Then, Moby. That song, man. Recorded in his home studio, off the Everything Is Wrong album, from 1995. Tony looks at the phone, the portal, back to New Jersey but hesitates to get to it, to pick it up. Certainly not with the same urgency with which he went for it at Junior's. Which is important to mention, by the way. He wanted to live. He didn't want to stuff himself with a pillow, even though he said it. But here, he hesitates to dial, and ultimately changes his mind. I always saw the phone as a metaphor to come to, to rejoin them. He's just not quite ready yet. He's got more work to do in the Bardo. Like Matheson in the Snow Leopard, despite a letter from his young son, he wasn't ready to begin the trek home, even if it went past the planned schedule. Not when there was more work to do. The book like the show, reminds us there are no happy endings. Or endings at all. Everything's in constant movement. A continual state of becoming. That's why remember when can be dangerous. If it lodges us in the past, it's destructive. But if it propels us forward, like wind at our backs, well. That's a different story. Importantly, the book reminded me to expect nothing. Things just are. And like snow leopards or northern lights or personal heroes or what becomes of tea, maybe it's better if there are some things that we just don't see that's all I got see you next time